I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is one word that the Lord speaks to us this morning through Paul that I want to really focus our attention on. And I just read that word a moment ago. That word is mind. And I want to focus on the word mind because we generally in our society are not about the mind. We are about the heart. We are about passion. We're about feelings. We want politicians who are passionate about their work, not people that just show up and punch the clock. We want to have a pastor who is a passionate preacher, not just somebody who gets up and recites dead orthodox doctrine. We want doctors and nurses who are passionate enough to work long hours with little reward and little pay. We want hockey players who have heart, not just people that are in it for the money and the attention. We look at politicians that we might call a poindexter or a pastor who is cerebral or the doctor who is all brain and no heart or the musician who may be technically proficient but lacks soul and say, oh, if only they had more passion. We prefer passion and heart and dislike people obsessed with mind. We like people who follow their gut and not people who are cold and calculating. So consider what the Lord says through Paul this morning. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is, by the way, the exact same thing that John the Baptist preached on the shores of the Jordan. It's the very same thing then that Jesus went out and preached when they said, repent, because the word repent in Greek, metanoia means change your mind. Not change your heart or your feelings or your passion, but change the way you think. Change your logic about the world. In our gospel reading for this morning, we have the central question that Jesus asks the disciples, according to Matthew, each of the gospel writers, the Lord uses to frame the account and ministry of Jesus in slightly different ways. Of course, all of them are focused laser-like on the sacrifice of God at the cross. Each of them spends an inordinate amount of time on the passion narrative and Jesus's ultimate crucifixion and death and resurrection. But each of them get to the cross in slightly different view, focuses his journey of Jesus to Good Friday on this question, who do you say that I am? But that's not the first question he asks. He starts by asking, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What does the world conform their mind to? How does the world think about someone coming into their midst who does the kinds of things that I do, Jesus says, or that speak the kinds of things that I speak, Jesus asks. 
And of course, the disciples oblige because they've done their focus groups and they've done their polls and they, they know what's going on in the world. And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's kind of like the Jews are looking for somebody who's going to play the greatest hits. It's like that 1970s channel on the radio or the 1980s channel. It's funny how like the oldies keep getting newer and newer and newer. The world, you see, has its answer for who Jesus is. The world has conformed itself to an idea of what Jesus was all about, if he existed at all. And it's an answer that generally fits the world's heart, not their mind. Fits their passions and feelings, but not necessarily anything logical. Their idea of Jesus comes from the gut and not from the nose or the brain, or the mind. Four times in Romans, and multiple times in the epistles, passion comes up out of the pen of the apostles. And every single time, it's negative. It's never a positive to be passionate. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul talks about people getting carried away by their unhealthy sexual passions. In Romans chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In Romans chapter 7, verse 5, Paul says, we were living in the flesh and our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul had asked us to put to death what is earthly in you, including passion. And in 2 Timothy 3, 6, Paul warns Timothy about those who will creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. There is a reason, even in our day and age, that we talk about certain criminal acts being crimes of Passion, because passion leads us to do things that get us in trouble. Your emotions can lead you to say things and to do things that are not healthy for the world and certainly not healthy for you. If you need an insight into that or an illustration, drive around Montreal sometime today or tomorrow. I'm amazed by what we see on our roads, especially as we have more and more of these left turn lanes and merge situations where people have to line up for the better part of a kilometer to wait their turn. And you have all seen the people whose gut tells them, why should I have to wait in line? I am more than all these other people. I have more pressing things to do who skip all the way to the front of the line and then so kindly put their turn signal on. Say, you've got to let me in. Because they're passionate about they're passionate about where they want to go, but it's not logical. Because they're not thinking about everybody else that wants to get to the same place. Those of you who are fans of Star Trek know that the Vulcans are known for their logic. Spock was always so logical in Star Trek. Well, logic would dictate, Captain, that I have to do this or that or the other thing, or that we should do this or that or the other action. What most people don't know is that in Star Trek lore, the Vulcans were actually highly emotional. 
much more emotional than humans. And it got them into trouble. It got them into wars and violence that engulfed their entire planet. And so the solution to the problem that passion was getting them into was the mind. To think about things, to be logical about things, to push down the heart and put their mind into high gear for a moment. And so it was that the Vulcans became known as a people of logic, not because they weren't emotional, but because they knew the power of passion and what it could do to you and to me. Jesus knows what the world is answering to his question, who do they say that I am? So now he turns his attention to his followers, to the 12. Who do you say that I am? Now, Simon Peter is the one who replies. In Matthew's gospel, he is most definitely the spokesman for the 12. You are the Christ, he says, the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And that, of course, is the Christian answer to Jesus's important question. It might even seem that Peter's really passionate about that answer. But then what does Jesus say to Peter? It's very interesting. He doesn't say, oh, finally, Peter, you get a right answer. I was wondering if this would ever happen. Back next week, we're going to hear in the gospel how Peter immediately gets the wrong answer to this question. Now, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood, passions have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It's not a logical answer, but your mind has been transformed by your being in my presence, by your listening to my word, by your seeing what I do, all very logical things. And no matter what the world around you and the Jewish authorities and the Pharisees are feeling about me, the father has given you the logical answer, which is given everything I'm doing, given everything I am saying, given everything I am telling you about what the father is doing. The only logical conclusion is that I am, in fact, the Christ. Next week, we'll hear how Peter lets his emotions get in the way. That's where Satan enters in, you see, and Peter gets really passionate about Jesus being the Christ, but I don't want to jump too far ahead. And so Paul is still preaching years after this whole event with Peter and the disciples and Jesus about the importance of being transformed in your mind. To be able to know and say that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, that Christ will come again. To know the gospel, not just as a truth here, but is a truth here, something that is true in history, true in our world, true for you, true for me, true whether you believe it or true whether you don't. How many of you have ever had a math teacher teach you how to do arithmetic? Here are two apples. Here's another two apples. You put two apples together with two more apples and you get... Oh my goodness, we need to teach this here at Ascension? Okay, two plus two equals four apples. Now, how many of your classmates, or maybe you, had the gall to say, I just don't feel that's right. I feel that should be five apples. 
and have your teachers say, well, whatever you feel is right is an answer I will accept. However many apples there are, it's what you feel there are, not how many there actually are. No, no math teacher ever says that. Two apples plus two apples is four apples. And it doesn't matter how you feel about the number of apples in your hands. That's what Paul is trying to get through to the Romans. After all of his laying out of the theology of sin, that is true for Jew and for Gentile, that the salvation that comes by grace through Christ is true for Jew and Gentile, that we as Christians have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, that we struggle with what it means to be a Christian day by day by day. Paul says, even I find myself doing the evil I don't want to do and not doing the good I want to do. But then in Romans 8, he gives us the grace that comes down continually from God, that nothing can separate us from Christ. And after laying all of this out, his hope for them is that they have been transformed here that the way they now think about themselves and god and the world will be different than how their neighbors think about it that they will no longer see themselves as atomized individuals but as one body with various gifts where one person doesn't have everything needed for the church to do its thing, but that God has made sure that everyone in the church together supplies those needs. Some in giving generously, some in serving, some in teaching, some in exhorting, some in encouraging. And together, we are the rock. Together, we are those little pieces built off of the rock out of which we were hewn that becomes the church of Jesus Christ. Your minds become transformed and no longer think the way the world does, where it's me first, me last, me in the middle. We become God's people and become a we. And then... With transformed minds, we can test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, test here doesn't mean like put something in a test tube, shake it around, put it on a Bunsen burner and see what happens. Testing here means trial. You go through trials. The church goes through trials. Your family goes through trials. And as those trials come upon us, because our minds have been transformed and we know that God cares about us and we know that God has died for us and our sins are forgiven in Christ. And we know that he gives us every good and perfect gift. Then in the midst of all of the horrors that sin and the world and Satan can throw at us, we can find a path through. And we see how God wants us to be his body in those circumstances. Chiefly, that means not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But seeing yourself as part of the body. Seeing yourself as brothers and sisters in Christ, saved by the blood of Jesus. This is a common theme in Paul, by the way. And I think it's common because it's the sin that Paul struggled with. After all, he was very well-educated. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. His bloodline was impeccable. He was trained by Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And here he finds himself spreading the gospel with a bunch of fishermen from Galilee. What do they know? 
about the Torah? What do they know about the prophets or the writings? What do they know about the temple ritual? Anytime the opportunity comes up, Peter says, let's go fishing. Paul's like, oh, great. Fishing again. And in that moment, the spirit would speak to Paul and say, and who are you, Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted the church? And in those moments, I'm sure Paul bowed his head and said, you're right, Lord. I don't deserve to have your name on my heart either, but you have transformed my mind and I know I am yours now, not my own. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, Paul writes in Galatians. Those are the words of someone with a transformed mind. There's a website out there called Cold Case Christianity. It's kind of interesting because it's somebody making exactly this case, that we spend way too much time telling people that they should feel that Christianity is the right religion. That's crazy, at least what the authors say. If Paul is about transforming your mind, why do we spend so much time talking about the heart? And so on this website, there's a nice list of why you should not be a Christian. The man says, I'm not a Christian because I was born one. I'm not a Christian because my friends were Christian. They weren't. I'm not a Christian because I wanted to know God, because honestly, truth be told, most of us don't. I'm not a Christian because I want to go to heaven because the average person in the world is pretty sure that death is the end. And I'm not a Christian because I needed to change my life. Most people are pretty happy with their lives the way they are. No, the author says, I am a Christian because it's true. Two apples plus two apples makes four. And whether I like that or not, it is the way it is. Not because it feels right, but because logically it is right. And our logical worship, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 12, our logical giving of ourselves is to use our transformed minds to live a life different from the way the world thinks it ought to be lived. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind in Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen.